Welcome to the Sunday Morning Bible Study at Whitestone Christian Fellowship, taught by Pastor Bob Lorenz. We're located in the village of Victor, a little southeast of Rochester, New York. Pastor Bob teaches line by line and verse by verse from the Word of God. Now, let's join this week's Sunday Morning Bible Study, already in progress. Please turn to 1 John chapter 5. And we'll read verses 5 through 8 together. If you're just tuning in on the internet, we welcome you to the January 8th service here at Whitestone Christian Fellowship. It's a little after 10 a.m. in the morning. And we encourage you to read along with us. Our reading is 1 John 5, 5 through 8, and we're going to be looking at the first few chapters of Matthew and the first few chapters of Luke at the same time. Uh, discrepancies between the two nativity records, between Matthew and Luke's gospel, confuse people. And when they see the confusion, they think it's just plain untrustworthy that God's Word is just made up. And what they don't understand is what God wants them to have, and that's perspective. And a knowledge of the culture and the obligations that an observant Jewish family would have. So we're going to be looking at those things today. But for our reading, 1 John chapter 5 Let's read verses 5 through 8 together. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. These three agree in one. It's all about the witnesses that we have received not only the witnesses themselves and the stories of their lives that are contained in the Bible, but it's also the testimony of these witnesses. And it all points to Jesus Christ and the fulfillment of prophecy. There are major prophecies in the major prophets. There are major prophecies in the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And Matthew is the gospel that is written to the Jews. It was written in their language originally, and it was Matthew, an observant Jew, who was humbled by his participation among the apostles, that Jesus would pick him, a publican, a tax collector, someone who the Romans had hired to do their work and to collect their money. 
The empire was huge. It needed a money machine, and they were taxed. But when we look at when we look at the Gospel of Matthew, and then compare it with Mark, we have a problem. They are not in agreement. There are some rudimentary things where they're in agreement. The fact that they were in Bethlehem, called on by Micah in prophecy, Micah 5.2. And we're going to read about that in a minute. But one of the most glaring things that we see in between the two stories of the nativity is that when we, when we read Matthew, we read of the three kings that came from the east, the Magi. We don't find them any place in Luke's gospel. And when we read Luke's gospel, we read of the shepherds gathered around gathered around the manger where our Lord was laid after His birth. You don't find that in Matthew's Gospel. And so people think, well, what's up with this? And they, they doubt the Word. These are supposed to be the men who prophesy and teach and follow the Lord. And so we want to take a look at that. Now, we have just gone through, during the Christmas season, the holidays, we've just went through Luke. And we should be fairly familiar with it because we go through it every year. It brings out many more details than the Gospel of Matthew does. But Matthew has some unique features and events that take place that are just as important as all of the ones in Luke. Now where they agree is that he was born in Bethlehem and that he was born in a manger and he had probably the breath of animals and this is conjecture he probably had the breath of animals to keep them warm in that manger scene in that stable or in that cave wherever it may be. In Luke's gospel We read of Elizabeth and Zechariah. We read of John the Baptist. And we read of two prophets. Well, one that had a promise, Simeon, that we looked at last week. And Anna, the prophetess, the, the elderly widow, who spent all her time in the temple. And Simeon had a prophecy for Mary. And she held all of those things in her heart. Now, those things that she held in her heart were things that she thought were a personal prophecy for her regarding her son. So it's important for us to understand that there were some things that Mary thought were just for her that not, weren't necessarily shared with everybody. But at the end of that story, <clears throat> at the end of Anna's testimony here in the Gospel of Luke, 
we read in chapter 2, verses, 20, uh, verses 37 and 38. She was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which had departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she, coming in that instant, gave thanks likewise unto the Lord, right after Simeon, and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. And when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned unto, into Galilee, to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And from there the storyline jumps in the Gospel of Luke to 12 years later. when the family made one of their regular trips. An observant Jewish family back then made three trips a year to Jerusalem for one celebration or another. For Passover or for the Feast of Tents or for their whatever it may be, whichever ones were, would require their attendance in the temple. This they did every year. So in the ensuing time from the end of, of that, that record in Luke, for 12 years, there would have been 36 trips made into Jerusalem. Now, what we read in Luke, and we'll read it in, in Matthew, is that Joseph was of the house of David. His family's hometown was the city of David, just outside of Bethlehem. Now for all of these 36 trips that they had made up until the next time we read of Jesus at the temple, supposedly when Mary and Joseph left him there, thinking that he was elsewhere with other family members or neighbors or cousins or whatever, They found him in the temple, but it's important for us to understand that they made that trip regularly, three times a year. That was the norm. And when they went back to Jerusalem, where would they have stayed? We know what it says in the gospel accounts that when they got to Bethlehem for the birth of the child of Jesus, there was no room for them at the inn, which leads us to believe that it was during one of those holidays when all of the Jews would come to Jerusalem. Go down the street, there's a no vacancy sign. No vacancy, no vacancy. If you ever did any traveling back in the 40s or 50s or 60s or 70s, you've seen those signs, you still see those signs. And the inns and the hotels along the highways. It's because it's a busy travel time of the year. So we understand that they might have stayed with family members in the city of David. The inns are all shut up. They're all filled. But there's a wonderful thing is 
I've got family here, Joseph thinks. I'll go check out and we'll see who's, who's got extra room in any of their homes. We stay with them regularly. They know we're coming. Now, they were probably delayed a little bit because of travel time being a little slower because of Mary's great size being pregnant with the child. The child Jesus. Carrying God. Carrying the Redeemer. And yet, they went back to family probably. And I was reading this past week that many of the homes, even the ones that had extra rooms to let out to travelers and to visitors, they had a, they had a small cave or a shelter at the back of the house. And it was usually reserved for the animals. But when company came and they needed to play a place to stay they could clean it out fairly easily and let somebody a family member stay there where it would be sheltered and where there could be a fire lit to keep them warm probably after they cleaned out all the straw but nonetheless that's all that's all a great possibility and I'm not saying that this is what happened I'm just saying this is a strong possibility and it makes sense. If they're going back to the hometown, then they're going back to the city of David. And they, un, they most likely have relatives there that are willing to open their homes. And especially when they see that one of the gals is pregnant. I think the gospel describes it as Mary being great with child. What an exciting time for them. In the midst of this celebration, they're going to have a new addition in the family, not only for Mary and Joseph, but for the whole extended family as well. So they, found, they find themselves in this inn. And Jesus is born, and according to, according to Luke, He's born, he's taken into the, pres the temple for presentation and for the circumcision, and they went back to Nazareth, their hometown. Well, wait, where are the wise men? The wise men are in Matthew. Now, so far, the two Gospels are pretty much in agreement. And when we get to chapter 2, we find the visit of the Magi. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, this is Herod the Great. Herod the Great died in 4 B.C. according to Roman history. Let that sink in for a moment. Herod the Great died in 4 B.C. And wise men, and came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. 
Well, Herod is still very much alive, so this is prior to 4 B.C. We don't know how much prior. But there are many that believe that the star was shining up in the heavens any time after 5 B.C. So the wise men come into town and they say, where is he that is born king of the Jews? The kings of the east thought, well, what the heck? You just go to the head guy and you ask him. He may not know where the king of the Jews is supposed to be born. The plumber, the baker, they may not know. So they went to the governor. They went to Herod the Great. And certainly he was great enough that he had a reputation in the Middle East. Because when he built things, even though he was small in stature, when he built things, he built things on a grand scale. The walls of the city were expanded. The second temple was expanded. It it was huge. It was gorgeous. But he also built this wonderful aqueduct that ran from the city of Jerusalem all the way out to the Mediterranean Sea so that water could be pumped into the aqueduct and taken into the city. And by the time it got into the city, it would have been pretty well purified and the salt taken out of it. Because we know the Mediterranean is salt water. Nonetheless, they went to see Herod the Great. And when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled. A new king for the Jews? What am I going to do? I'm the leader of Jerusalem for Rome. And I want to be the leader for the Jews as well. And what we understand about the Herods, the Herod family, is that they were Idumeans. They were the descendants of Esau. They were not Jews. They could play the Jewish part. They were Semites, children of Abraham and children of Shem and children even even into the early stages the early times of Genesis they were cousins to the Jews Jacob Jacob's family the patriarchs were Abraham Isaac and Jacob Jacob's family were the Jews but Jacob's twin brother was Esau And he left because of a break in his relationship with his brother, that dirty, sneaky thief, Jacob, which is what his name means. Jacob had stolen Esau's birthright. So there was a rift between the two of them. But Esau left. And he went out and he builded a city all his own and a culture all his own because he didn't want to have anything to do with his father's other son. 
and all 12 of his kids. Nonetheless, when we look at what this is telling us, Herod was troubled when he heard about these things, and all Jerusalem was troubled with him. And when they had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. Christ is a title. It's the anointed one. It's the one that came from God. So Herod wanted to know where this king was to be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. And that's Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Hundreds of years before Jesus is written, his birthplace is identified. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written, And thou, and this is the quote, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. Well, there's a timing problem then that creates perspective. There's a time. When did this star appear? It could have appeared as early as perhaps 6 B.C. or 5 B.C. But certainly it was still up in the up in the sky while the wise men are speaking to him and they're speaking to him prior to his death in 4 B.C. He called the wise men and inquired of them diligently what time did the star appear. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. That was probably the last thing on his mind. But nonetheless, the wise men must have told him when they began their travels westward toward Jerusalem. How long was the star up there? When did you first see it? It's important for us to understand that there is a timing problem here, which becomes evident in the next several verses. He sent them on to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. In verse 9 it says, And when they heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east, okay, they came from the east, they went to Jerusalem, they got to go back east a little bit to Bethlehem. They saw it in the east, and it went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And now listen to this. It says, and when they were come into the house, house? I thought he was born in a stable. It says that when they came into the house, 
they saw the young child. I thought it was an infant. Now he's a toddler. And when the star appeared, that's key. That's key. But back to the story of the wise men finding the young child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense. And according to my grandson, my eldest grandson when he was a little guy, fur. (laughs) He had a terrible time pronouncing the word frankincense. But he tried really, really hard. And he finally got the gold and frankincense, and then he messed up myrrh, and he said, fur. Those were the three gifts. (laughs) His name is Joshua. The Scriptures say, a young child shall lead them. Well, he leads us into humor. But nonetheless, they gave him these three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, the gold for the wealth of a king, but the frankincense and myrrh were burial ointments. And those were given to families with young children even because young children didn't necessarily survive. They don't have the medical practice to guide them. They didn't have pediatricians. They had midwives. They had other mothers. So being a child born in the Middle East at this time or anywhere at this time is a precarious situation. How to nurture. Make sure you've got nutrition. And we already know that there's goat's milk. There's sheep. But Jerusalem is in an arid land. You don't get out, you don't get a lot of great crops in the Jerusalem region. You have to go out five to ten miles before you find good crops and grazing land even for your, your herds, your sheep and your cattle. But when they had presented their gifts to the the young child and his mother, and being warned of God in verse 12, in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they said, okay. Warned of God in a dream. These guys are spiritually sensitive. These three kings of the east. And if they're three kings from the east, They don't travel alone. They travel with a contingency of guards and other support staff to make sure that they're comfortable when they travel. They could very well have been a company of 50 or 60 or maybe even 100 men traveling along with these kings of the east. I think last year or the year before, we did a study on that. And when these kings traveled, 
they came with soldiers. And when someone like Herod would have seen a contingent of soldiers and kings coming into Jerusalem, right to his residence, no wonder he was troubled when he saw them. There weren't just three. There more, were more than that. And in fact, as for the three wise men, we don't know how many wise men they were. What we do know is that they came with three gifts. You know, so there's some, some vagueness in the Scriptures. But it's not important to the overall story of the Nativity. The Nativity is not about three kings or four kings or 125 men that may be traveling with the kings. It was about the birth of Jesus Christ, the child God that was come to the world, Yeshua. Emmanuel. Break that down, Emmanuel. I, man, you, El. Elohim. El Shaddai. El is a shortened term for the word God in Hebrew. We're just men. He's God. There is nothing impossible to Him. They departed into their own country another way after they had had the dream from God and believed it. This makes me wonder, because they believed God, we may very well see them in heaven. And hopefully so. And they are among the kings that will have cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus as it speaks of in Revelation being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. They bugged out on him. And when they were departed, the angel of the Lord appeared unto Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the child, not the infant, the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Satan has been after this child for a long time. He's been after the bloodline since time immemorial. Woman after woman was pronounced to be barren and yet, God created a birth at the right time to develop the right family and to continue the bloodline until it came to not only Mary, but also to Joseph because both were of the bloodline of King David. In verse 14, it says, And when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of by of the Lord by the prophet 
saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. And that's a quote from Hosea 11.1. It's an important part of the message because it's an important part of the number of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled himself regarding his own birth, his beginnings here on earth as, as Emmanuel, God with us. Verse 16, it says, Then Herod, when he saw he was mocked by the wise men, he was exceeding wroth, he was really angry, he sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Well, we've been following the star for a couple of years now. The star indicated his birth. What we know is that the star led the wise men to Bethlehem, but, he, but Joseph and his family had gone back to Nazareth. Now they're back in Bethlehem, probably staying with family members, or maybe they came early and they found room at the inn, or they found a house to rent, and that seems to be the case. When they came into the house, the young child with his Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. So for two years, according to the wise men that they had followed the star, for two years, Mary and Joseph would have made several trips back into Jerusalem for their required attendance at the great feasts of Judaism. You see, there's a reason why there are two separate storylines to this because both are vitally important to give us a fuller picture. So when someone tells you, well, they don't, the two, the two, the two records of his birth don't match, you can say, well, of course they don't match. Not only were these two Gospels written to two different groups of people, but the Gospels themselves are probably written about 30 years apart. 37 A.D. is one of the dates that has been given to gospel, the Gospel of Matthew as it was written. Luke didn't write his until 65 to 68 A.D. 30 years had gone by. Matthew is written to the Jews and Luke is written to the Greeks. In fact, Luke is written to one Greek. He's written to, it's written as a letter to one man, a friend, a lover of God named Theophilus. And both, both the Gospel of Luke and Acts of the Apostles also written by Luke, tell us that these are two letters written to Theophilus. We think of them as accounts of the gospel, and Luke surely is. We get a lot of information from Luke. We get a lot of information of Matthew. Some of it is in total agreement 
But the rest, <laughs> the rest is the Paul Harvey, <laughs> the Paul Harvey issue. It's the rest of the story. And for those of you that are unfamiliar with Paul Harvey, he was a commentator and a columnist. And he would tell people about the rest of the story. He would give background. He would give incidents, social, cultural influences for different events to give us a better understanding of what was happening in history and why. We think Paul Harvey instituted that. God instituted it in his word. And he used it at the very beginning between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Both of those chapters give us, give us information on the creation of the world. Genesis 1 gives us an overview. Genesis 2 goes into detail and explains how it was done and the timing and it was Genesis 2 where we find that Adam was already formed, but God came and breathed his breath into Adam, and Adam became a living soul. The breath of God made him come alive. And from then on, we find that Adam is able to communicate with this great Holy Spirit of God that formed heaven and earth. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. David writes of that Holy Spirit in Psalm 51, verse 11. He says, Lord, please don't turn your back on me. Protect me. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. This is so important. There were many Jews that believed in a triune God back at the time. There were many Jews that believed at one time that there were two redeemers coming. One being a suffering servant and the other being a reigning king. We read of the suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53. We read of him in the Gospels as he's crucified. We read of him again as he returns to earth in victory and in triumph as a reigning king at the rapture of the church, bringing his children back to the new heaven and the new earth, his kingdom. What happens if that one Redeemer comes twice, though? And that's Christianity. We have a second coming that we're looking forward to. Many of the Jews who believe still in the Redeemer coming, they're still looking for His first, uh, his first arrival. And the prophet of Zechariah we read that eventually the Jews will have their eyes opened and their ears opened. And it says that they will look upon Him whom they have pierced. 
and they will enter into a period of mourning and weeping and rending of their clothes because they will have the understanding that it was the forefathers, their forefathers, it was the Jews themselves that put Jesus to death on a Roman cross. Everything about the two gospel accounts has perspective laced through it with details of one thing or the details of another. Combine them and you'll see how authentic and how true it really is. Now, my preferred version of scriptures is the King James Version because it brings these things out. There are other translations that are almost as accurate and they give you a good overview but they don't give you the detail. And we have to admit that even the King James Version is an English translation of the original manuscripts. But here in the States, this is our native tongue, English. And the King James is the most accurate of the English language translations that we can find. If you're, read, if you're reading from another another version of Scripture, you'll find that they began to become prolific in the 1700s because a couple of men decided it was just too hard to read Old English. It was too hard to study. And of course, back then, they didn't have necessarily the technology to go back and translate and look at the original manuscripts and all of the rest. Well, we have that technology now and there's nothing that we can't do to sit down and read the King James and if we come across a word that we don't understand or seems awkward in its use or its placement in a sentence, there's a reason that it was placed there. There's a reason that it was placed there. And I'm going to take you back briefly here to Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis 22, God drops a bomb on us because the English translation is awkward. And because it was awkward, it has been changed in many English language Bibles. In Genesis 22, verse 8, 
we have the story of Abraham offering his son Isaac. And Isaac is getting ready to be sacrificed. Abraham is so filled with faith because he's already received a promise from God that his offspring will be as the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky. But Isaac is his only son at the time. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together towards the altar. And Abraham laid his son on the, on the sticks that were to be set afire for the sacrifice having complete faith in his father. But the wording here in verse 8 is, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. There is, there is a hint there that God himself would be the sacrifice. He will provide himself as the sacrifice. And that's what he did in Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, Yeshua. In subsequent translations of this English verse, we find a more easily read, and that is that God will provide a ram for the sacrifice, not himself. He will provide an animal for the sacrifice. And we know that that's what happened. That Abraham suddenly realized and found that there was a ram caught in the thicket next to the altar that was going to be his death altar for his son. But this original English translation says God will provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. The lamb of God. Jesus Christ, our Paschal, Passover sacrifice. So if you're not used to the King James Version, you may fight your way with me through some of these teachings. You may, you may follow through with a New King James or an NIV or a New Living Translation, an NLT. But most of them have been altered. And they have changed the subtleties of the original manuscripts. And this is one of the most subtle changes that they made. Genesis 22, verse 8. God bless you this morning. Thank you for listening. God is God's got God's got the the proof in the pudding. <laughs> He's got everything in here we need to understand him and to understand the timing and to understand why the two versions of his son's birth are different. And when, when these things are opened up to our understanding, it becomes really exciting. And we know that there are many more prophecies in Scripture that are yet to be fulfilled. 
And we are watching them being fulfilled in our media, in our news reports, in primary CNN, TNN, MSNBC. They're being reported daily. But if you know your scriptures, if you understand some of the prophecies, even just a few of them, you will watch the prophecies being fulfilled today. When the scriptures tell us that believers will be persecuted, look around on the internet for instances of Christian persecution. There's a little of it here in the United States these days. But anti-Semitism, it's on the rise worldwide. And in other countries, Christians still are martyred on a regular basis. Persecution is here. The persecution is present. It's always been here. It has never left since the time that the apostles, except for John, were all martyred for their faith. It's been here since the people have hated Jews around the world. And when we think of the, the Jews in Israel, some people prefer to call the land Palestine. And they were called Palestinians because they lived in that land of Palestine. Nobody wanted to call it Israel because that put a name and a face that was easily identifiable. And so the Romans, because they saw themselves as adversaries or an adversarial force against the Israelites, they named them Palestine, which is derived from the word Philistine, another enemy of the Jews from the days of Abraham. even from the days of David. God's Word is coming true. Believe it. Read about it. This is not just a sacred Scripture book. It is a book of history. It's a book of history. There was a book written in 1956. It's out of print now, but it's still available in used bookstores. It's called The Bible as History. It was written by a German man. It's a delightful read, and it covers the Old Testament prophecies, and it names people, places, and things that are recorded in secular history as well as the Bible itself. This is a book of history. And for us, it is His story. God bless you. Have a wonderful day in the Lord.
from Psalm 67, verses 1 and 2. God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that thy way may be known upon earth, thy saving health among all nations. God bless you. Have a wonderful week in the Lord. Walk with Jesus this week. Look in your history book, read the media, and find the corresponding fulfillments of prophecy. God bless you. Have a wonderful week in the Lord. Thank you for listening to the Sunday Morning Bible Study at Whitestone Christian Fellowship, taught by Pastor Bob Lorenz. To access the list of teachings or to check the archives for Pastor Bob's weekly observations column, log on to whitestonecf.com. There you can also check the weekly schedule and any upcoming events. To contact us or to drop a note to Pastor Bob, you can email us at whitestonecf at gmail.com or call us at 585-924-8820. Whitestone Christian Fellowship is a non-denominational congregation. Every Sunday, Pastor Bob walks us through the Bible, teaching line upon line and verse by verse. And we're located in the village of Victor, a little southeast of Rochester, New York. And if you're in the area, we invite you to visit us. From upstate New York, Pastor Bob encourages all of us to immerse ourselves in the Word of God. Until next time, remember that Jesus is our victor. Stay close to Him.